Okay, great. How you doing? You okay? Doing well? Um, if you, hey, um, if, um, if you're still writing out your form, you haven't quite had time to do it, that's absolutely fine. Uh, maybe at the end of the meeting, you could just hand it into the information desk and they'd be more than happy to collect that for you and, and they'll kind of make sure that the offering guys get that. Um, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you just quickly grab it to uh, Luke chapter 11. Sorry, no, let's not do that. Mark chapter 11. There you go. That's a good start, isn't it? Is it Luke? I've got Luke and then I've got Mark. Luke chapter 11, I was right. I've got Luke in my notes and then later on I've got Mark. So there you go. This is going to be a brilliant one, isn't it? Let's go for Luke chapter 11. Uh, we're, we're off series tonight, obviously not in Matthew, um, which gives me a great opportunity to share, I guess, just a few things that are on my heart as a kind of venue leader of Six O'Clock Church. Um, and to be completely honest with you, um, I think I've been through a bit of a painful journey um, over the past few, few months, really. Um, it's probably still not yet complete, but I feel God's really significantly impacted me in a few different ways. And I felt if this is a good opportunity for me to share some of what God's doing in my heart, I hope that it will bless you. Um, this isn't just me just sharing stuff for, the, for my sake, but actually I feel that as I share it for you, I feel if, if it can bless you in any way, then I'll be absolutely um, over the moon. I feel this is something that would bless us as a venue. Um, so yeah, if I can in any way deposit to you some of what I've been learning, um, then I'd be absolutely delighted. Um, so let's just get straight into the verse, and then we'll pray, and then just kind of see what God wants to say to us. Um, it says this, so this is uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. And they came to Jerusalem, so this is Jesus and his disciples, and, they, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? For you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Father, I just pray tonight, would you uh, really open our hearts um, to hear from you? Um, I just pray, would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? I pray, would you remind us of all the things in your words tonight? And I pray that tonight, as we receive from you, as we leave this place, would you deposit something in our hearts which lives on beyond tonight? That's what I pray, Lord. I pray that beyond tonight, there are things that you deposit in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that will live on, that will grow and bear much fruit, I pray, uh, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, this is um, quite a familiar passage. It's a passage that I've read many, many times um, before. You can actually find it in uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel as well. Um, and there's actually, this is the second time that Jesus has done something like this, cleansing the temple. Uh, he actually, you can read it about a time earlier on uh, in his life in John's gospel. Uh, but when I read it more recently, there was something about it that caught my attention in a way that I hadn't really grasped before. You know, when you kind of read a passage and suddenly something hits you between the eyes, and you're like, I read it, but I didn't quite read it. You know what I mean? I knew it, but something happened in my heart. 
And uh, I, I understood why Jesus was upset, right? I understood why God would be annoyed about people making it harder and harder for people to come into God's presence, harder to get into the temple, making money out of God, if you like, and people's needs. It's kind of like the very opposite of food bank, isn't it? You know, you come with your needs, uh, and we provide for you, and we kind of show you, and we can pray for you. For these guys, like, okay, so you want God, you come, but you give us your stuff. You give us your food, you give us your money, and then we'll give you the right currency for you to be able to access the temple. It's, so uh, it's, it's no wonder that Jesus was upset and annoyed. And I'd always kind of understood that and known that, but there was something about what Jesus said, which really just, there's something about what Jesus said which really impacted me, and it's this. It says, is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Prayer. And, I mean, he's quoting Isaiah 56 there, but it got me thinking. Because I could think of a number of other words that I could put there. Um, in fact, if I'm totally honest, I could, th- I could think of a few words I'd probably prefer to put there. My house would be a house of songs, of worship. A house of mission, preaching, a house of teaching, a house of evangelism, a house of mercy. So many things, yet it's really interesting that God says, no, my house shall be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. And so I started looking at other familiar verses, other passages, but through this lens of prayer. Um, And I wanted particularly to try and work out what is the connection between a follower of Christ and prayer? What's the connection? And there's a particular phrase that came up again and again and again and again, all throughout the Bible, actually. And it was this, they called upon the name of the Lord. They called upon the name of the Lord. And it's really interesting. I did a bit of a study even just on that sentence. Sometimes it's really helpful to do that, just... A particular thing that sticks out and you just think, oh, I'm just going to look into that a bit more. So what I did, I started looking through some of the Bible, at even that phrase, they called upon the name of the Lord. And interestingly, the first time we see it is all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. So we're talking about before a preach has ever been preached. This is before any uh, worship set list has been formed, before any promise actually of a church has been born. <laughs> interestingly. Before any venue was planted before any commandment or anything, any Bible was written, as we know it, in Genesis 4, we see a godly strain of men and women distinguishing themselves from their ungodly neighbors by what? By calling on the name of the Lord. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, so we see this guy Enosh, who's Seth's son, and there's a group of people that start calling out on the name of the Lord. It's what made them different to their ungodly neighbors, if you like. It's what differentiated them. It's what defined them. Now, interestingly, in Psalm 14, I found it again, but in the opposite way. It says this in Psalm 14. It says, this is what God says. Will evildoers never learn? O those who devour my people as men eat bread, and what? Do not call out on the name of the Lord. I found that really interesting. That is how God defines the ungodly in this case. Actually, the ungodly, the evildoers, they are those that don't call out on the name of the Lord. 
was a guy, Jim Simbale. I've just been reading his book. It's an amazing book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He, he says this, they will do many things, talking about evildoers. They'll do many things, but they will not humble themselves and recognize God's omnipotence by calling on his name with all their hearts. There is something intrinsically linked between being a servant of the Lord and calling out on the name of the Lord. They go hand in hand. You never find one without the other. So you think, okay, Alan, those are Old Testament things. Well, what about the New Testament? What about after Jesus, what changes? Well, actually, not very much. Um, we, we see in, uh, in the New Testament, we meet this guy called Saul, all right? Saul of Tarsus. All right? And Saul was a Jewish guy, and he hated Christians. All right? In fact, his job was to investigate and find all of those people who, in Acts, quote, call out on the name of the Lord. That's his job. What he does, he brings them before the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, there's one account where it says that, that Saul, this guy, he was actually there approving the murder of the apostle Stephen. So this is, a, this is a horrible guy. This is a guy who actually is celebrating the death of Christians. And the way that they defined them were people who called out on the name of the Lord. And then basically there's, we, we meet this guy called Ananias. And God speaks to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to this, this guy Saul and I want you to pray for him. Now, this is what's really interesting about this passage. Obviously, what is Saul's, uh, sorry, what is Ananias' first reaction? What would be our, all of our reaction? I don't think that's a good idea. Last guy who did that, poof, he got stoned. Now, what is interesting is what God says to him when he asks him to go. Right? This is really interesting. Right? Just entertain me for a minute. Why is Ananias going to be okay? Why will Ananias be safe? What evidence is there that God says, indicates that there's a change in Saul, where we find it? Acts 9, verse 11, it says this. God said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. I, I found that fascinating. The evidence that someone has gone from someone who persecutes and kills those that call on the name of the Lord, just days later, he is there, humbly, on his knees, praying out, calling out the name of the Lord. This is the evidence of someone who has had this transition, someone who has been saved. Actually, what defines Paul now isn't, oh, he's just a really nice guy. It's not, oh, he's, he's actually just written a report in the newspaper saying, I'm so sorry for all the people I've killed. No, the evidence is you'll find him there praying calling out on the name of the Lord. I found that really, really interesting. The man who just days before was killing those who called on the name of the Lord is now on his knees, humbled, calling out on the name of the Lord. There is something about prayer. There is something about prayer that is the defining thing of what a Christian is and does. It's not because I'm a Christian I need to pray. Actually, my dependency on God and my requests and my petitions to him actually are all evidence that he's my Lord. Does that make sense? So God changes uh, Saul's name to Paul, which is, let's face it, a good idea. Can you imagine him trying to set up a, a ministry with that name? Hey, I've, my name's Saul. I've got some good news. Ah, 
kind of running away. Um, so anyway, he changed his name to Paul, and in the new, he actually ends up writing a lot of the New Testament. Brilliant. Audience participation. <laughs> Love it. Changes his name to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul writes a lot of the New Testament, including Romans. Now, what does Paul say? Here's, some, here's another really familiar passage that a lot of us will be really familiar with, but there was something about it that, again, caught my attention with this lens of prayer. He says this in Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, where it says, How then will they call on him who have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him whom, whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You know that passage. We know it well, don't we? What I found really interesting, what I've never really realized before, is that believing isn't the end goal for God. It's not actually the end of the process in what the Apostle Paul is saying there. He starts with sending leads to preaching. So you send someone, they can declare the word of God, they preach the word of God. So sending leads to preaching. He says, preaching leads then to hearing. People therefore hear the word of God. Hearing leads to believing. So that bears fruit in their life and they believe in Jesus. But there's one more that actually I never really realized before. I never really picked it up. Actually, I thought, oh, believing. So you send them, you preach the gospel and they get saved. Paul says, no, actually the final thing is this, believing leads to calling on the name of the Lord. Isn't that really interesting? It doesn't just finish with a belief. Actually, there's something about prayer, there's something about calling on the name of the Lord that the Apostle Paul says, that is the goal. That's where we're getting to. It's not just about sending, it's not just about hearing, it's not just about believing, it's that bearing fruit in our lives where we call out on the name of the Lord that we've asked to be our saviour. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And we're not talking about legalism here. Right? Please don't hit on, hear me on. I'm not talking about legalism. It's not about what we now have to do. It's about looking for one of the fruits in our life that shows of actually who we are now, I've got to be totally honest. I don't know if I can really truly say before God that calling out on the name of the Lord has been the defining thing of my life. Um, I do it, but is it the defining thing of my life? I'm not sure if it has been, if I'm totally honest with you. And I want to be honest and say, I don't know whether actually as a venue um, we can say we have taken prayer as seriously or as intentionally as I would have liked to, if I'm totally honest. Um, and that's quite a painful thing actually for me to admit because as someone who's meant to be leading um, this thing, God has highlighted quite painfully that I've, I've given, given far too much time and attention to the details that I can do and far less time in calling on the name of the Lord to do what actually only he can do. I, I can only go so far. Actually, what this teaches me is that what defines me as a Christian is that I call out on the one that is able to do far immeasurably more than what I'm able to do. 
And, I, and I'm realizing that actually, by God's grace, I can do a lot of this stuff in my own strength. God, I can. And, and sometimes I, I, I do. Um, a lot of this stuff fits within my own strength and skill set. And I could lead people in worship, even preach and do this kind of stuff. And it can be sustained for a while. But in the long run, God never blesses church done that way. God never blesses even a venue done in that way. So I guess tonight, before I get into some points on prayer that I feel would, I would encourage us with, I firstly just wanted to say I'm sorry um, for any time either I, um, the leaders of this venue or connect group leaders or whoever, haven't been fully dependent on prayer and calling out on the name of the, of the Lord when leading this venue. Um, I'm sorry for that. We should be a people, we must, we must be a venue, a people who are defined by our calling out on the name of God, calling out on the name of the Lord. Um, when we launched this venue, we had some four core values. So we talked about um, people coming as they are, come as you are, live connected, be transformed and join the journey. I don't know if you remember those. Um, I guess one of my only regrets is that we didn't really position prayer as one of the core values of what we did and who we were when we started. Because ultimately it defines God's people. So I, tonight I just wanted to share just a few things that God has really been challenging me on. Um, and I hope that as I just get a little bit vulnerable tonight, um, and I don't often preach in this way, all right, um, if you're visiting, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I just hope as I share them with you, God may highlight one or two of these areas in your life as well, because um, I feel that this is something that God would want to do with us not as a venue in the church. Is that okay? All right? So the first thing is this. The th first thing I've learned in the last um, couple of months is that God is really attracted to weakness. God is attracted to weakness. I'm, real I'm realizing that all the while, while I fool myself or give the impression to God that I've got it all together, um, he has very little space to do anything. Very little space to do anything. And you see, God can't resist. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. God, I need you. Our weakness actually gives a lot of space, a lot of room for God's power to move. And, you know, Satan's main strategy with God's people has always been to whisper, don't call, don't ask, don't depend. You can do great things on your own. You'll get along fine if you just rely on your own cleverness and energy when the truth of the matter is the devil isn't terribly frightened of our own human efforts or credentials. You know what? When we start calling out on the name of the Lord... Satan is scared. He is. He knows that when, his, when the people of God start calling out on his name, he knows that his kingdom will be damaged when we lift up our hearts and cry out to God. And what I'm learning with this whole thing of weakness is within the kingdom of God, weakness seems to hold a different currency um, to the world. You see, in the world's view, and maybe this is where I've battled, is that in the world's view, if, you, if there's weakness... Um, Things that are associated with that is that you're useless, that you won't achieve very much. No one's going to follow if you're weak. You're needy. 
But for God, he sees someone in weakness as an incredible opportunity to demonstrate strength. You know, it says in the Bible, in my weakness, you are strong. Is, is, is it something of a recognition of, actually, in my weakness here, there is an opportunity for you to show yourself through in this situation. And it's not about our mental or emotional or physical strength. Actually, it's all about our dependency on him and the surrendering of our self-reliance, our self-dependency. You see, if my, if my default position is I'm going to give it a go and if it doesn't work, I'll pray, then I've missed the point. That's still self-reliance. Prayer is not a last resort. And if our focus was to be just on structure and procedures and stuff like that, a venue, and I, and I don't think it has. I think we have been quite, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we, we've got everything wrong. We haven't. I don't, I'm not saying that at all. But I feel that if we, if we focus too much on structures and procedures and those things, then we give very little scope for God to do stuff in our hearts. However, when we acknowledge our limitations and our weakness and call out to God, who is the source of all power and might, we gain access to a strength far beyond what we can muster on our own. Let me just ask you, when, when it comes to leaving 6 o'clock church, because I'm not just talking about meetings, I'm talking about the authority we carry when we leave these doors. Are you hungry for more? Are, are you hungry for more? Are you, are you recognizing, actually, on my own strength, on my own merit, I can't do this on my own. Holy Spirit, I need you to do something in my life. Weakness. And, you know, the thing about weakness is it's quite painful because it smacks in the face of pride. And this is another thing I... Saying I'm weak is a real lesson in humility. There's a, a guy, Terry Virgo, kind of started up our New Frontiers kind of family of churches, and he says this about pride. He said, pride's a snare. Self-sufficiency is an illusion. It robs us of so much. It stops you taking risks. What about your reputation? What will people think of you if you make a mistake? You may be ridiculed. You, you may be look a fool. You don't want to appear childish. How many well-taught and safe evangelicals have refused to risk a fresh move of the Holy Spirit, forgetting the clear teaching of Jesus that we must become as a little child to inherit the kingdom? We wrap ourselves around with garments of superior knowledge and years of experience. Muttering cynically, we take our refuge in caution and criticism. Pride takes many forms and guises. And when I think of pride, I think, well, what's the counteraction for pride? Well, I look at Jesus. We read about Jesus in Philippians. And this is what it says about Jesus, this all-powerful one. The one in Isaiah says, to whom will you compare me, says the Lord. He is absolutely other than. Yet it says this, he says, he considers himself nothing, making himself a servant. He even gives up his life to die on a cross. And what I find interesting is such apparent weakness in the world's eyes, isn't it? Like if you, to, if you was to write up a story of an absolute loser, Jesus would be it, wouldn't he? He tried to do something, tried to build a kingdom, and then he was mocked, spat at, ridiculed by the people he tried to save, and they murdered him on a cross. It was a fail. In the world's eyes, incredible weakness. But his dependency on the Father and his knowledge of who he was led to great authority and power. There's a guy, Stephen Furtick, who says this. I love this. 
Jesus had all the authority and power in the world, and he knew it. But in spite of that, he took the lowest place in the room. Jesus could do this because he knew who he was. He's referring to Jesus one day when he, he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. He got his hands dirty and he, just imagine in their day, he, he would have got the sand in between their toes. And he would have washed it out. And this guy, Stephen Fertig, is saying, he took the lowest place in the room because he knew who he was. He had the affirmation of his father. Because Jesus' identity was secure, there was no reason for him to be offended. He had done everything for the disciples, from feeding them to keeping them to teaching them. And he was in the process of paying the ultimate price to save them. He didn't owe them anything. They owed him everything. Yet because Jesus knew who he was, and because he knew where he had come from, and because he knew where he was going, he didn't have to prove himself to anybody. He had power, all the power in the world, but he didn't need to assert it. Only insecure people do that. Do you know, when I read that, the bit that stood out to me more than anything else was insecure people do that, um, and they have to prove themselves. And there's something about pride which robs in the face of weakness because there's something about me trying to get my image up instead of actually having an image, an identity, which is rooted in who I am in God. And I believe that gaining a true understanding of who we are means we no longer need to strive to make a name for ourselves. I have his name now. And what more can I do that Christ has already done? So it's the first thing I... I've learned, or I'm learning, is that God is so attracted to weakness. He can do a lot with weak people. We see it time and time and time again throughout the Bible. He takes those people that maybe everyone else has written off. He says, you, I can do something with you. He calls someone like Gideon, and Gideon says, what, me? He says, yeah, you. And he speaks out of him, mighty man of valor. Everyone else? He's, I'm, the, I'm the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. I'm the lowest of the clans of the lowest of the clans. I'm the lowest of the lowest. He says, no, you're not. Rise up, man of valor. His weakness gave room for God's strength. That's the first thing I've learned. The second thing is this. God loves a big appetite. God loves a big appetite. There's so many scriptures that encourage us to ask him for things. My, um, my girls always ask me for things, um, and I love it. Um, I remember years ago, we went to, um, it wasn't a zoo, it was like an animal park. And Bethany got to ride on this pony, uh, or this donkey, I can't remember what it was. I think it was a pony. And afterwards, she came up to me, so excited, she said, Dad, can I have one of those? <laughs> can I have one of those? Um, obviously, I, I said, no, darling, you can't. Um, we don't do animals in our family. Um, <laughs> but I love the fact that she, she confident enough to ask me for big things. And do you know what? God loves it when we're confident to ask him for the big things. He, he really does. He loves it when we have a big appetite. I think God loves it when we ask him for big things because the difference between me and him is that he can do it. All things are at his disposal. And in the same way, I love it when the girls ask me for things. Sometimes I, you know, I even know what they're going to ask me, but I love it when they ask me. I, I know what the answer is. I've, I'm even getting it ready. I know she's going to ask me for a nice lolly. I'm already getting out of the freezer, but I love it when she asks me. It says in the Bible that God knows everything we need of him before we ask. But his encouragement to us is ask him. Ask big. Ask him. Say, God, 
You said in your word. You know, he encourages us, take, our prom- take his promises and put them back to him. You said in your word that you would do this. So we want it. We want more of it. Would you do it? He loves a big appetite. If we're, we're at risk sometimes of coming to meetings or meeting together in small, small groups or what have you and having too small an expectation on what God could and what actually should happen when we come together. Let me just encourage you, stir your appetite. And this is what I've been praying God for in the last season is, God, do something in the hearts of men and women where we just have a bigger appetite for you. We must expect God to do more than we're currently seeing. We must increase our appetite to see God and ask God to do more in our lives. Not just here. I'm talking about outside these four walls. I'd love to hear more testimonies of what God is doing. In this book I've been reading by Jim Simbalo, he says this. The apostles prayed for God to do supernatural things. They wanted people to know that their belief was more than positional or theoretical. There was power in this faith. They wanted a faith that was obviously alive, a faith based not just on the cross, but also on the empty tomb. I love that. The cross, as poignant as it is, is understandable from a human perspective. All right? An innocent man murdered by crooked politicians and religious leaders. But he says, the empty tomb? The empty tomb. What can you say? Only a supernatural God could accomplish that. They don't just, it's not just positional. We're, we don't just hold a position. It's not just theoretical. No, actually, we believe in a supernatural God, don't we? We believe in a God who rose again and is now reigning and seated forevermore. I want that to be evidence in when we meet together. I want that to be evidence when my conversations with people outside of these four walls. And Jim Simbala, he goes on, he says, One day I told the Lord that I would rather die than merely tread water throughout my life, always preaching about the power of the word and spirit, but never seeing it. I abhorred the thought of just having more church services. I hungered for God to break through in our lives and in our ministries. So let me ask you a question. Are you hungry? Are you actually hungry for God? I don't mean, oh, that would be really nice. I mean, are you growing in your appetite? Are you starting to get hunger pains for him. If we do not yearn and pray and expect God to stretch out his hand and do the supernatural, it's, it's likely not to happen. God wants us to ask him. He wants us to have faith for it. We need to give him room to operate. If you come, um, if you come here, you enjoy the meetings, that's brilliant. Um, and if you have good friendships and, and like a really fun time, great. But if we gather and that's all we do, um, we're not in any way resembling a New Testament church. Um, are you hungry for him? I love the way that Paul started worship tonight. Before we sing any songs or do any of that, why don't you just ask, just say, God, I'm hungry for you. I want an encounter with you tonight. Let me just quickly say something about diet here. Because in order to have space to feed on God and have an appetite for him, we need to make sure we're not feeding on junk food. And um, I noticed for me there's a few things that I've had to adapt. Um, one particular habit for me actually was my mobile phone. Um, I, I noticed that one of the first things I'd do when I woke up in the morning would pick up my phone and I'd look at BBC News, um, social media apps and those kind of things. And um, I've now come off all social media. Um, and I've actually removed all the apps from my phones that I, I feel steal any time from me. 
So I've had to make some changes. But what I found is actually, if the first thing I do in the morning is fill myself up with information and stuff which isn't of God, actually I find myself, I don't have much appetite for them afterwards. Actually, what sometimes we need to actually remove the junk food in order to be able to eat from him and to enjoy him. The first step in any kind of spiritual awakening is demolition. I'll say that again. The first step in any spiritual awakening in our lives is demolition. We cannot make headway in seeking God without first tearing down the accumulated junk in our souls. Any time people get hungry and truly hungry to truly know the Lord, the Holy Spirit puts a shovel and a broom in their hands. I love that. You're saying, God, I'm hungry for you. He says, great, here's a shovel, here's a broom. Let's do some work there first. Let's, get, let's, le- let's allow some space for me to come in and move and do some things. We, we sing this song, um, and actually we're going to sing it in a, in a little while. We are here for you. We are here for you. And there's a particular line in there uh, where we're talking about let your fire fall down. And just last week, when we were in the prayer meeting, we were singing, let your fire fall down. And I felt like God challenged me um, and basically asked me a question saying, do you really want that? And my initial response was, yeah, I do, I do. I really want it. I'm hungry for it. And he says, because you see, when fire comes, what fire does actually is it purifies. (laughs) It purifies. It burns away all the rubbish and it purifies. And Alex, if, you, if you're really going to sing, let your fire come down, that's going to be painful because it means I'm going to burn away the junk in order to fill with other things. Does that make sense? So that's the second thing. God loves it when we have a big appetite. God's attracted to weakness and he loves a big appetite. And lastly, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Um, I can find myself sometimes giving God some really good advice. Um, I've, I've done it a few times before. I've, I've actually said to him, God, you did it right there. I, I just wonder whether it would have been better if. God knows what he's doing. And that's pride again. We need to recognize that God knows what he's doing. We need to know that his gospel plan is the only plan. There's no plan B. We are it. When we try to put God's plan and purposes through our own mechanisms and ideologies, we lose sight of God's blessing. Now, his blessing is for his purposes and his plan. The other day, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, um, John Wales mentioned at the prayer meeting um, Someone gave him a prophetic word, and basically the prophetic word was something along the lines of, <clears throat> you think you've got some good ideas on how St. Leonard's Venue is going to work. Um, it's not it. <laughs> I thought, what an encouragement. What an encouragement when someone comes along. God says, oh, by the way, you've got all these plans. It's not them. And there's something of, a, actually, sometimes you just need to depend on God. Actually, sometimes it's all right to sit and wait for a little while and say, God, what, what's your plans? It's very easy sometimes for us to come up with some great ideas. And we do need to be active. We do need to be proactive. I'm not saying we just sit back and do nothing. But actually, sometimes God's plans are so much better than our own. Sometimes he just wants us to pray and wait for God moments. Wait for God moments. There's um, a moment, I don't know if anyone's seen The Incredibles, the film The Incredibles. Um, There's a moment he gets home from work. He's angry, he's stressed. And in his frustration, Mr. Incredible, he picks up his car 
And he looks down and he sees a little boy on a little bicycle. And the little boy's like going, oh, my word. And he puts his car down, he goes in. The following day, he arrives home and he drives into the driveway and there's this boy waiting. He's waiting to see what's going to happen. And Mr. Incredible, he gets down and he says, what are you waiting for? And he says, something incredible, I guess. And do you know, when I, every time I see that film, every time it gets that m- moment, something in my heart says, yes. I feel like sometimes God will say, what are you waiting for? And I'm like the little boy in the bike saying, something incredible, I guess. Not just my own plans, but perhaps actually I'm wanting to wait on God. God, what can you do? Something incredible. Better, you know, I'm not saying that we don't do anything. All right, of course we don't. But better wait on him than go off on our own agenda. That's what I'm saying. It means that we have to give up control. It means that sometimes six o'clock church might get a little bit messy. But you know what? That's okay. Um, I was chatting to someone actually in that same prayer meeting last week. Um, someone who I would say historically has been very loud and very, um, she laughs out loud. Um, you kind of know when the spirit's moving because she'll be laughing away. And I said to her, why is it I haven't really heard you laughing? I haven't heard you laughing. And she said, and she said to me, she said, truth be told, I, I sometimes I suppress it. Um, I hide it because I, I feel like I, I don't want to disturb the meeting. I, d- I don't, I don't want to distract from what other people are going through with God and things like that. And there was something in that moment I thought, oh, God, I don't, I don't want us for the sake of, um, how can I put it? Safe meetings compromise on what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in our hearts. And I think, God, break pride in our hearts. Break something in our hearts where actually we're more hungry for what our experiences is of you than our reputation with other people. And it was a, it was a wonderful moment, actually, where I could actually almost commission her and say, no, God, God says you're like a scout that goes in front of the army. And you're going to find pools of joy. And your responsibility is to call people and say, here, look at this. As you laugh, people are going to say, she's found a pool of joy and people will follow. There's going to be something which unlocks doors. We need to be a people of the spirit, completely dependent on him. Not saying, well, let's just tone things down. That's not the kind of church that God has called us to be universally, let alone here in King's Hastings or Six O'Clock Church. So it might get a bit messy. It might mean that we don't feel as though it's kind of, oh, it's not what I had in mind. It's not what I had planned. But God's plans are so much better. The work of God can only be carried out by the power of God. The church is a supernatural spiritual organism. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, wow. Brilliant. There are some slip-ups. That's one that I might even have to uh, edit the recording. (laughs) oh god that wasn't in my plan either yeah okay shall I try that again (laughs) the church is a spiritual organism fighting a spiritual battle only spiritual power can make it function as God intended God we need you There's another quote I read from somewhere else. It says, if we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, 
to pour out his spirit amongst us. If we don't call upon the Lord, he has promised nothing, nothing at all. It's as simple as that. No matter what we preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend on our times of prayer. And, you know, I know for some of us, actually, you've been through situations where you've prayed a lot and you've actually worked through disappointment. Um, disappointment has, has kind of robbed you of hope, maybe, when it comes to prayer. Um, Lou and I, a couple of years ago, and I've said this before, we went through a real stage of disappointment. We were actually quite disappointed in God because he hadn't answered um, in the way that we wanted to. We were praying for, actually prayed and fasted for years for health for our girls and didn't really see the answer in the way that we hoped for. Do you know, when we pray, even in your pain, those prayers and those cries to God are so precious, so precious. And um, something else in my study on prayer that I found, which really impacted me, and actually I, th I think has helped me be a better pastor when I see people hurting when they're praying. Because in Revelation, you get a glimpse of um, like the 24 elders when they fall at the feet of Jesus. And each one, it says, has a golden bowl. And do you know what's in the bowls? Do you know what's in the bowls? It's the prayers of the saints. Just imagine, you and I, we kneel down or sit down, stand up, whatever, and we pray, really opening our hearts to God. And what we say is so precious to him, he stores it up like treasure in a bowl. I thought, wow, Do you know, God knows what he's doing. God has the tools at his disposal to fulfill all he has set out to do. But do you know what? God has chosen prayer to be the channel of his blessing. He says, my house, this house, this venue is going to be a venue of prayer. My house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. It means a dependency on him. It means ridding ourselves of the junk food in our lives so that we can hunger after him more and more and more. And just some last words from Terry Virgo, because him on prayer is just absolutely incredible. He says, a biblical church will have a strong prayer emphasis. I love how blunt Terry is. He says this, the early church devoted itself to prayer. Jesus modeled a life full of prayer and his disciples tried to emulate him. Churches must do the same. And he goes on, corporate prayer is fundamental to the success of the local church. Through fervent, believing prayer, we affect local government decisions, promote godliness and righteousness in schools, and bring about effective evangelistic breakthrough in our neighborhoods. Prayer is an incredible weapon. Our prayer meetings should be the most important gatherings of the week, especially if we take spiritual warfare seriously. The local church is a body of disciples, an army at its best when its members pray fervently together. It's challenging, isn't it? Isn't it really challenging? All the different things we do, they're great, but actually what I want of my life, what I want of myself is to be someone who is defined by someone who always starts there first. In any big decision I make, in any kind of great exploit that we do, that's why we've been praying an awful lot about this community hub centre. We don't know all the answers, but you know what? We're going to give ourselves to praying. God, do something. 
And do you know, my prayer for us as a venue over the last couple of months, almost every prayer has been, God, will you do something in the hearts of men, women, and children in our church, which gives us an appetite to call out on the name of the Lord like never before. If you were to read any revival book, if you were to read any kind of spiritual awakening book, it always starts with a group of people praying. It always starts with people getting on their knees and saying, God, will you do something? I just want to encourage us. I want us as a venue to be a church. I want us to be a venue, sorry, that we are defined by people that primarily before anything else, we call out on the name of God and say, God, will you do something? Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. Maybe Paul and the guys can come up. Um, I'm just, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray on behalf of us. And then I'm just going to give us a few minutes for you individually to just pray um, and, and call out on the name of God for your own life. Is that okay? Oh. God, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you accept us. Thank you that you've called us not just into your family, but you've got good works for us to do. Thank you for your church here. Thank you for six o'clock church. And we say, God, we, we are so dependent on you. We say we are so sorry for any times where we have done things in our own strength and haven't been fully dependent on you and your work in our lives. And we say tonight, God, we say we are all about you. We say, Holy Spirit, would you, would you bring areas to mind in our life that's junk food? Would you bring areas to mind where we have not honoured you and we say, when we say fire fall down, we say, would you come and purify your people? Would you come and would you remove the junk from our lives? And I pray, God, would you do something in the hearts of men and women and children here where we start to cry out for you out of a fresh appetite? Not because we have to, but because there is something in our hearts where we call out your name because only you can do something. We look at the different things we're doing. We say, food bank, God, we can only go so far, but God, you need to do something. We say with the community action hub, we say, we can only go so, so far, but we say, God, would you do something for our children, for our, for our un, unsaved husbands and wives? We say, God, you need to do something. We say when we call out as a venue, we say, God, we want you to be glorified in this town. But we say, God, you have to do something. We call on your promises and we, and we say, God, you said your spirit will be poured out on all people. We say, Holy Spirit, pour yourself out on us, I pray. 
We say you, you, you say you'll call people from all nations. We say, God, we have got a number of nations in this town. Call them out to you, I pray. We say, would you take the scales away from our eyes? Would you open their hearts to knowing you, I pray? And God, would we know our adoption in you in a fresh way, even tonight? Thank you for our identity in you. Thank you for what you've called us to be. Thank you we don't need to work anything up. We just need to live in, the, in, in who you have called us to be and where you've positioned us. So we say, God, do something in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you just take a couple of minutes just before God, and you just, I guess, just do kind of what I've just done there. Just say, God, would you do something in my heart? I believe that in this moment, God might start identifying things in your own life where you just say, God, I know that hasn't pleased you. You just give it to him right now. And just in a few minutes' time, Paul's just going to lead us in just singing out a response song to him. But let's not leave this place without just doing a bit of business to God and just saying, and, and do you know what? this isn't a forced thing. You know, if you don't want this, don't ask for it. But if you want it, ask. And God says, ask and you will receive it. He is more than happy to pour out his spirit on us. So let's just do that now. Just while Paul plays, let's just have a moment just for you to do a bit of business with God. And then we'll sing a song together.